Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Nestled away within the rolling foothills of the Moncoyo mountain range in the province of Zaragoza, Aragon, Spain, is the tiny village of Trasmoz. The town has a long history, with its origins as a lordship dating back to the 12th century. Its colorful and turbulent past has seen it being conquered by Jamie I, King of Aragon, as well as a civil war with the nearby Veruela Abbey, and it is also known as being the temporary home of a Spanish man who invented the mop and bucket. Over the years, the population has dwindled here from around 10,000 people in its heyday to just around 62 permanent residents, and it seems like just another quaint little Spanish countryside town. But this place is remarkable as having a rather sinister past, as a place of witches, pagan rituals, and black magic. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. I'd also like to invite you to our very first live stream of Weird Darkness, which is going to take place on Halloween night. It'll be on camera, in fact, on YouTube. So if you want to watch the video stream live, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash marlerhouse. There is a link to that in the show notes. Again, it's live October 31st, and I'll start the streaming at 5 p.m. Central Time. Uh, that will be 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Pacific. And again, you can get all the details by clicking the link in the show notes. And this month, being October, it is our official anniversary month here at Weird Darkness. And to celebrate, instead of asking you to become a patron or promoting one of my audiobooks, I'm asking you to help me raise funds for depression and suicide prevention. And you can make your donation right now by visiting WeirdDarkness.com and clicking on Battle the Darkness. Our goal is $1,000, and we are already at $740. Amazing! We've only got $260 to go to reach that $1,000 goal. So hey, maybe, maybe you can be that one person to make up the entire difference. Or maybe just $5 or $10. Whatever you can give, it all goes to a very worthy cause. And again, you can give right now. Just go to WeirdDarkness.com and click on Battle the Darkness, or you can click the link in the show notes. And thank you in advance for listening to your heart. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… When Jeffrey Dampier won the lottery, he thought he had finally had it all. Little did he know that someone was about to take everything from him. They found Annie stretched out on the floor with a pistol lying by her hand. There was no sign of a struggle, and nothing had been taken. They could only conclude that Annie had taken her own life. 
But is that really what happened? When you think of seeing a ghost, you almost automatically envision an ethereal being in flowing white, like that of a woman in a wedding dress. And that might make sense, seeing as there are a lot of dead brides-to-be floating around America. You've seen them on the outside of large Gothic buildings and massive churches. Their stone faces and menacing presence can be unsettling to some people. But what are the purpose of gargoyles? Were Betty and Barney Hill actually visited and even abducted by aliens in 1961, or was it an outlandish story just to get attention? And the village of Trasmas in Spain is said to be cursed by witches. Could there be truth in the lore? We begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Ground zero for rumors of witchcraft in Spain can be traced to the construction of the castle of Trasmas sometime in the 13th century. The layout of the spooky and imposing structure was a unique hexagonal shape, which was seen as a sure sign of witchcraft afoot, and it did not help that the castle supposedly constantly issued forth anomalous noises such as rattling chains, the banging of metal which was seen as the result of witches mixing potions in their cauldrons, and other mischief, as well as occasional shrieks and arcane wails. Even the construction of the castle was wreathed in myth, as it was said to have been created in a single night by a magician called Mutamin. Many of these bizarre rumors seem to have been originally intentionally spread by the castle's very own inhabitants. At the time, the castle of Trasmas was said to be a major den of the illicit manufacture of fake coins, which was helped along by the rich silver and iron mines of the area. It is said that in order to keep the locals from becoming too nosy about all the noise they were making, the counterfeiters intentionally began to fan out rumors that the scraping and banging of metal was from the nefarious activities of witches engaged in their dark, arcane business. And the ploy worked, and it is thought that this was where the village's reputation as a haven of witches began. Unfortunately for the villagers, the rumors spread by the fake coin forgers worked a little too well. Before long, the rumor grew to encompass the whole village until it was seen as a veritable hive of witches and warlocks, a cursed place and a center of the dark arts that stirred fear and superstition in the surrounding areas, an idea still held onto by many today. It got to the point that the neighboring monastery of Veruela had the entire village officially excommunicated from the church, although this is often seen as just being an excuse to force Trasmas to pay taxes to them, something from which they had previously been exempt, as it didn't officially belong to the Catholic Church. With the excommunication carried out and in full effect, the villagers nevertheless refused to beg for forgiveness, with many of them Jews and Muslims, and not even Christian, 
which only furthered their reputation as devil-worshipping heathens. The friction between Trasmas and Veruela Abbey would continue for many years, eventually almost leading to civil war when the Abbey began trying to divert the village's irrigation water without paying. Although the King of Spain, King Ferdinand II, deemed Trasmas to be in the right in terms of the water dispute and ruled in their favor, the church took this as an affront. Seething that they had been bested by this witch-infested, excommunicated town, the Catholic Church went about getting revenge. Pope Julius II gave permission to dust off the powerful and rarely used Catholic curse, Psalm 108 of the Book of Psalms, which is said to be a potent curse saved for the worst of times, and in this case it was invoked to curse the entire village of Trasmos. Psalm 108 reads as thus, a song, a psalm of David. My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, on Edom I toss my sandal, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? It is not you, God, you have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Why this somehow was seen as a curse is beyond me. It was in the wake of this wicked curse that the once prosperous and populous village fell into severe decline, suffering from a mysterious epidemic of disease, famine, a fire which burned down the castle of Trasmos in 1520, and other myriad woes, during which time the population fell to its current low. Even to this day the village is poor and in shambles, its buildings weathered and decrepit, its nearly empty streets cracked and weed-choked, a veritable ghost town. And for many this is a result of the Catholic curse, which is technically still in effect, as no pope has ever officially lifted it. This makes Trasmos the only entire town in all of Spain to remain both excommunicated and also cursed by the Catholic Church, as well as to incidentally still be considered a haven for witches and witchcraft. This reputation has brought in droves of tourists to this tiny, withered village who come for the dark history and to see for themselves what an officially cursed town of witches looks like. Trasmos does little to downplay this history of witchcraft, and indeed there is the yearly festival held there, during which amulets, potions, herbs, charms, and other magical witches' items are sold, and there is even the crowning of the Witch of the Year. There is a museum of witchcraft now located in the castle of Trasmos, where the whole legend started. If one is ever to visit, 
there are plenty of charms to be bought against witchcraft. So rest assured, you're in safe hands. Up next, Jeffrey Dampier won the lottery, was generous with it to everyone he knew, but it didn't stop him from being murdered by a family member. They found Annie stretched out on the floor with a pistol lying by her hand, with no sign of struggle and nothing had been taken. So why is there a question whether she actually committed suicide? But first up, the incredible true story of Betty and Barney Hill, who claim to have had a close encounter of the fourth kind, and even have evidence to back it up. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow, but rather than me telling you about it, I'd like to read a tweet that was sent to me by AmCat96. She said, Darren Marlar, my MyPillow came in yesterday, and I didn't think I would like it because of how it was stuffed. Oh, was I wrong. I slept like a baby and woke up and my neck didn't hurt. Made it so much harder to get out of bed. <laughs> Do I hear you, AmCat? I have the same problem. AmCat96, she was able to take advantage of the Weird Darkness special, two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD or you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Or again, MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Congratulations to Snug Collectibles! They are this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and are receiving a free book from Audible.com. Plus, I'm now following them on Twitter. Next week's winner will receive a free Weird Darkness smartphone case, and I'll follow them. If you want to win, it's easy to register. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. So follow Weird Darkness right now and get to retweeting, you weirdo. The idea of little green men from Mars invading our planet has been bringing us excitement, joy, and even laughter for decades, simply due to the absurdness of the image. But on September 19, 1961, a reported event occurred on the back roads of New Hampshire that single-handedly rewrote what experts believed about UFO encounters and little green men. Up until this time, only a handful of reports of a similar nature had surfaced. However, this was the first highly publicized abduction account filled with detailed information. What happened close to Lancaster that evening made international headlines and made celebrities out of the couple that came forward. Their names were Betty and Barney Hill, and this is their story. The Hills were a married couple living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with their pet dog, Delcy. Betty was a social worker with the State Welfare Agency, and Barney worked for the post office. They were respected members of their community as members of the NAACP and the Unitarian Church. In fact, the governor had appointed Barney to serve on the state civil rights committee. After a short vacation to Niagara Falls, they were driving home on Highway 3 
through the White Mountains. Betty sat in the passenger seat and was idly gazing out the window when she noticed a bright light that she initially thought was a star. It seemed to be following them, but it was moving erratically. The couple had a brief conversation about it. Barney initially assumed that it was just an ordinary aircraft, but Betty suggested they pull over so they could get a better look and also to give Delcy a pit stop. Barney stopped the car and got out his binoculars. Betty looked first. She knew it wasn't a star when she saw a spinning craft with an odd shape and flashing lights of different colors. Barney took his turn to look through the binoculars. Although he had presumed it must be an airplane, he saw it rapidly descend and move in their direction, too quickly to be a plane. He rushed back into the car and continued to drive toward Franconia Notch. Betty watched the craft as it got closer and closer until it was right over them, forcing them to stop in the road. Barney did not know what they were looking at, but it was huge and silent. It hovered about 100 feet above them. He grabbed his pistol and the binoculars and went out to investigate. Barney saw windows across a pancake-shaped object. As he moved toward it, he saw something else that made him turn and run back to the car. Inside the craft, there were up to 11 beings that didn't quite look human. They were staring at him through the windows. Barney hysterically ran back to the car and drove away as fast as he could, but the hills were suddenly overcome by buzzing and tingling throughout their bodies. This was when things became very cloudy for them. When they regained full consciousness, they were once again experiencing the tingling, and they were 35 miles further down the road, without any memory of the drive to get there. When the Hills arrived home around dawn, they both felt strange. They knew they had seen something, but they couldn't remember what had happened after they felt the buzzing sensations. Both Betty and Barney had physical changes from the night before, including Betty's torn and stained dress, Barney's scraped shoe, and a broken binocular strap. But neither of them had any memory of these things having happened. Each also owned a watch, and after the previous night's events, neither watch ever worked again. Attention quickly turned to the car. On the back of the vehicle, shiny circles of concentric nature were discovered. A compass placed near the circles indicated that the circles were somehow magnetized. Betty confided in her sister, who strongly advised that she get in touch with the local Air Force base to report the incident. Barney was more concerned with being labeled an eccentric, but allowed Betty to get in touch with Peace AFB on September 21st. At that time, she made her first report. Five days later, Major Paul Henderson visited the Hills at their home and completed an official inquiry. A report written by the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP, concluded that the Air Force files had insufficient data on the events of that night. Ten days after their encounter, Betty began to have vivid dreams about the strange event. Five nights in a row, her dreams contained small men in uniforms who forced the hills into a strange craft and subjected them to examinations. She wrote down her dreams in a journal. Betty went to the library and found a book on the UFO phenomenon 
written by former Marine Corps Major Donald Kehoe, leader of NICAP. She contacted him directly, and their investigation began about a month after the sighting. Both of the Hills were interviewed at length by NICAP officials. Betty and Barney both admitted to seeing the same thing – a large disk that was silent. The people that Barney said he saw were somehow not human. The couple did try and put the whole episode behind them, but were being affected in different ways. Barney grew more and more stressed and anxious as time went on. Outsiders assumed that this was due to their interracial marriage, an uncommon occurrence during that generation. Some criticized the couple based solely on their union. None of this helped either spouse, and things got so bad for Barney that he was forced to take time off work in order to try and recover. Things were not much better for Betty, but she turned her attention toward trying to find out as much as she could about their perceived encounter. Meanwhile, Barney began seeing a therapist. Their feelings that something happened that they couldn't quite piece together gnawed at them for two years. A speaker at the Hills Church, Ben H. Sweat, gave a talk about his poetry and Betty and Barney attended. The pastor was aware that Ben dabbled in hypnotherapy and asked him about it. At the end of the talk, Betty and Barney asked Ben if he thought hypnotherapy might be able to help regain what they felt were lost memories. They also asked for his help, but he declined because he didn't feel that he was qualified, and instead he recommended they ask Barney's therapist for a referral. They took his advice, and that is when they found Dr. Simon. Dr. Benjamin Simon began working with the couple at the start of 1964. Over the course of around six months, he used hypnotic regression. During the first sessions, Dr. Simon concluded by inducing amnesia to each partner in order to reduce the possibility of potential collusion out of session. If neither was able to remember what happened, then there was less chance of them discussing matters among themselves. In his sessions, Barney had many new recollections, such as meeting an Irishman that had red hair. There were also beings there that didn't seem to be human. All of these individuals were dressed in similar-looking uniforms. Each had a peaked cap and silver piping on the uniform itself that reminded Barney of Nazi uniforms. According to his own memories during hypnosis, Barney said the crew spoke a language he could not understand, and also English, but they weren't using their mouths. Barney said they appeared to use thought transference. Betty reported similar events during her hypnotic sessions separately from her husband. Both revealed that they underwent medical exams during which the beings took numerous samples that included blood, bodily fluids, and hair. Betty also stated that as part of her exam, skin samples were taken. Much of what Betty had mentioned during her sessions were things that had already been written in her journal. Something took place on board the craft that only Betty noted, though. She indicated that the aliens showed her a map of where they came from, which she drew during one of her sessions. Some people believed this could be the location of their homeworld. Additionally, Betty had indicated that the beings showed her trade routes that they used frequently, routes they did not take often and those they took for expeditions. Sometime around 1970, 
a teacher from Ohio made a match to the Zeta Reticuli star system. It looked just like the map Betty drew and also included our own sun. Some of the stars on that map were not cataloged until after the Betty and Barney Hill incident, which for some people proves that their experience was genuine. Carl Sagan, however, provided another perspective on his show Cosmos, Episode 12. He said there is a resemblance between the two maps, but that's mainly because the lines corresponding to the navigation route have been copied from the hill map onto the real star map. If we were to substitute some other set of lines for the hill lines, we find that the eye suddenly is biased against seeing any agreement between the two maps at all. He also indicated that anyone can find just about any pattern from various vantage points in space. Once Dr. Simon completed the hypnotic sessions, he presented the tapes to the local NICAP investigators. Having interviewed the pair shortly after the original event, NICAP officials were impressed by their honesty and intelligence. Both wanted nothing more than to get to the bottom of what happened to them. Many people considered the hills to be reliable and even Dr. Simon believed that the Hills truly and sincerely believed what they reported. On the other hand, Dr. Simon never believed in UFOs or alien visitations. He was under the impression that the Hills shared a delusion based on Betty's dreams. Although he conducted the hypnosis sessions, he never swayed them into their testimonies. On the contrary, Ben Sweat heard the session tapes and indicated that Dr. Simon actually tried to suggest logical, rational explanations for the Hill's memories during the sessions, but to no avail. They stuck with their abduction stories. Toward the end of 1965, the Boston Herald Traveler managed to get an exclusive scoop when they somehow acquired reports of the original encounter. Someone had broken confidence, and October 25th was the first of a five-day expose of the Betty and Barney Hill alien abduction story. According to Sweat, Barney was upset about the leak and he had called Sweat in the middle of the night in a panic about it. Barney said he and Betty were afraid that they would be scorned and ridiculed and lose their jobs, said Sweat in his personal statement about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. Now that the couple was a media sensation, they both felt they had little choice. They needed to break their own silence. Before this, neither made any overtures for publicity at all. The Hills and Dr. Simon all collaborated with author John Fuller to produce a book based on their experience. This book, titled The Interrupted Journey, emerged in 1966. Betty's niece, Kathleen Martin, wrote a second book entitled it Captured – The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Both publications are still available today, along with countless others. We may never know what really happened to Betty and Barney Hill on September 19, 1961. The public is divided in its perception of the story between those who believe it wholeheartedly and those who think the story was merely a confabulation. What is certain is that despite their reluctance to come forward and report their encounter, the Hills have become synonymous with the UFO community. Their experience turned into the most well-known of all UFO reports and would set the stage for many others like it. As the 1960s progressed, Barney's health began to worsen. 
In February 1969, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Betty never remarried after his death and went on to become something of a UFO celebrity until her own death in 2004. John Dorman left the farmhouse to work in his fields at about 1.15 the afternoon of September 1, 1897. His wife Lizzie had some banking to take care of and left for Philadelphia at about 2. As usual, they left their children in the care of John's half-sister Annie. Eighteen-year-old Annie Dorman had lived with John and his wife at their Cobbs Creek home off and on for the previous five years, working as a nurse to their four children. Around 3 p.m. that day, a neighbor, Mrs. Myers, came by to chat with Annie, leaving about 10 minutes later. At 4.30, one of the children found Annie lying on the floor of the second-story room, dead from a gunshot wound. The children ran for their father, who returned to the house with Al Myers, stable boss at nearby Melbourne Mills. They found Annie stretched out on the floor with a pistol lying by her hand. There was no sign of a struggle and nothing had been taken. The men could only conclude that Annie had taken her own life. But suicide was unlikely for a number of reasons. No one who knew Annie could imagine what would have driven her to kill herself. She was bright and pretty, with an even and sweet temperament, and was always cheerful. Her boyfriend, Ernest L. Pendlebury, was steady and honest. She was a religious girl, healthy in mind and body, a favorite among the congregation of Sarah D. Cooper Methodist Church. Circumstance of Annie's death made suicide all but impossible. The pistol was old and rusty, sitting unused for at least two years, high on a shelf in the room where she was found. Annie was only five feet tall and would not be able to reach the pistol without standing on something, and none of the furniture had been moved. Chief Barry of the Chester Police Department examined the pistol and found it so rusty that it took all his might to cock it and pull the trigger. It had been fired five times. Two shots went through the ceiling, one went through a washerboard under a window, one shot shattered Annie's jaw, and one shot went through her heart. The shot through the heart had killed her, but the shot to the jaw had been so severe that she would not have been able to fire another. Since nothing had been stolen, it was thought that Annie may have been raped. When the body was found, her dress had been smoothed as if to hide signs of a struggle, but the top had been opened, exposing her breasts. The medical examiner determined that Annie had not been raped and was still a virgin. The inquest held at the Dorman Homestead on October 5th revealed that the household had not been as peaceful as it first appeared. A letter from Annie's father said that John's wife had not treated her right. One witness said that he had seen Annie crying on several occasions and had seen Mrs. Dorman chase her with a broom. Lizzie Dorman admitted that once during a quarrel with Annie she had grabbed her by the throat, but generally their relations had been pleasant. Their disagreements were seen as trivial, hardly provoking murder, and Mrs. Dorman was in the city at the time of the shooting. The coroner's jury ruled that Annie Dorman was shot by a person or persons unknown. The Philadelphia Inquirer speculated that a man who knew Annie and was familiar with the place had been watching 
and knew when she was alone. He entered the house between 3.30 and 4 and approached Annie with one intention. She at once detected the foulness of that intention. She pleaded with him, then threatened him. It was someone she knew and he realized he had gone too far and must silence her. He reached for the gun and she rushed him, fighting for her honor and her life. Three shots were fired wildly before the two that killed her. The murderer then placed the gun by her side and smoothed down her dress to hide evidence of a struggle, but like all takers of life, left the one mute piece of evidence in the shape of the exposed bosom. But there was no way to prove any of this, and no way to determine the identity of the man or even whether the killer was a man. With no leads to follow, and no funds available to hire professional detectives, Delaware County District Attorney W.I. Schaefer was forced to drop the investigation. The circumstances of Annie Dorman's murder still remain a mystery. If you're like most people, you've probably fantasized at least once about winning the lottery. After all, with that kind of money, you'd never need to deal with going to work. You'd never have to worry about bills or saving for retirement. But to paraphrase Biggie Smalls, sometimes more money just means more problems. And that's especially true for people who win the lottery. It turns out that becoming a multimillionaire overnight doesn't always lead to happiness. Just ask Jeffrey Dampier. Jeffrey Dampier was an average guy. He grew up on Chicago's west side and worked as a security guard until he won a staggering $20 million in the Illinois State Lottery in 1996. After coming into that kind of money, Dampier's life changed very abruptly. He and his wife got divorced, splitting the winnings 50-50. Dampier then began dating and eventually married another woman named Crystal Jackson. Two years later, the couple moved to Tampa Bay, Florida, where they opened a gourmet popcorn store. Dampier was generous with his winnings, especially to Jackson's side of the family. He spent lavishly on cruises and gifts, and when his sisters-in-law fell on hard times, he offered to take care of their finances. Of course, Dampier had a less-than-innocent motive for doing so. He was actually having an affair with his wife's sister, Victoria Jackson. It seems like things were good for Dampier, for a few years at least. Then in 2005, the story took a dark turn. Victoria was also dating another man named Nathaniel Jackson, no relation. Nathaniel knew about Jeffrey Dampier's money and came up with a plan to get his hands on it with Victoria's help. According to Victoria's account, she showed up in Nathaniel's apartment on July 26th. He then demanded that she call Dampier and tell him to come to the apartment. Victoria lured Dampier over by claiming that she was having car troubles. When Dampier showed up to help, Nathaniel pulled out a shotgun and forced him into a van. Dampier then had his hands bound behind his back with shoestrings while Victoria drove the van. Nathaniel repeatedly hit Dampier with the butt of the gun, demanding that he turn over his money. When Dampier proved uncooperative, Nathaniel and Victoria switched places so she could try to reason with him. Finally, Nathaniel handed the gun to Victoria. 
According to police, he demanded that Victoria shoot Dampier. Shoot him or I shoot you, he said. Victoria then fired a single shot into the back of Dampier's skull, killing him almost immediately. The pair drove the van to a deserted road and abandoned it with Dampier's body inside. The body was discovered soon afterward and the two fugitives were arrested a few days later. At the trial, the defense painted Victoria as a victim. According to her sister Tiffany, Jeffrey Dampier began his relationship with Victoria when she was just 15. They knew she was 15 when he started messing with her, she said. Where's the justice for her? And according to the defense, Nathaniel had forced Victoria into committing the murder. But the prosecution argued that when she placed the phone call that lured Dampier to the apartment, she knew what would eventually happen. For her part, Victoria felt that the victim wouldn't have blamed her. After the guilty verdict was read, she turned to her mother in the courtroom and said, Jeffrey forgives me. Both Jacksons were sentenced to life in prison, where they remain today. For Jeffrey Dampier, winning the lottery turned out to be a death sentence. His widow, Crystal, agreed in a later interview that he would have been better off without the money. I think it is a curse, she said. When Weird Darkness returns, we'll look at some of the numerous ghost brides of the United States. And gargoyles, aside from looking menacing, could they also be a kind of protection from evil? These stories are up next. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, but if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 800-830-9804. 800-830-9804. IRS. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now 
at 800-417-9743. That's 800-417-9743. A young woman, groom, and some of their wedding guests decided to play a game of hide-and-seek in a large mansion used for the wedding reception. One version of this story says it was the father of the bride's house. Someone other than the bride was designated as it. Some versions say the maid of honor, others say the groom, and everyone was found but the bride. Friends and family searched the house for hours, days, even weeks. A missing report was even filed. Eventually, the groom had to move on with his life. And one day, in the far-off future, someone was cleaning the house. They opened a large chest in the attic and found a skeleton in a tattered wedding dress. It seemed that the lid of the chest shut on the bride when she used it as a hiding place. She was unable to open the lid, and she suffocated to death. Some say the heavy lid crushed her skull. Another legend about ghost brides that I heard growing up involves a deadly wedding dress. There are many versions of this story, too. Sometimes it's not even a wedding dress. The story goes that a dead young woman was to be buried in her wedding dress, but her parents decided at the last minute to bury her in a different dress. Since the wedding dress was expensive, they decided to sell it for profit. This dress ended up in the hands of another young woman, and she needed it for a community dance. The entire night of the dance, the dress gave off an odor, and she felt very faint. Her date decided to take her home since she was not feeling well. She did not make it home alive. Her date told the doctor about the odor. The doctor investigated and found formaldehyde in her veins, which had caused her blood to coagulate and stop flowing. I don't know. When they asked the store about the dress, they revealed that they received it from a funeral home and it had been worn by a corpse. The dancing most likely caused the young woman to sweat, which opened her pores and took in the formaldehyde. I'm not sure why revisiting such dreadful stories bring joy to people, but in writing all of this, it sent me down a rabbit hole full of ghost brides. So enjoy the following bits of paranormal history involving brides, grooms, and haunted wedding dresses. The Old Faithful Inn, Yellowstone National Park The inn itself is already very haunted. A woman staying in room two reported a woman dressed in 1890s clothes floating at the end of her bed. People have also reported the fire extinguisher moving and doors opening and closing. The most interesting ghost, though, is the Headless Bride. People have reported a woman in a white dress drifting across the crow's nest, holding her head under her arm. According to legend, the bride was a young woman from 1915 New York that, despite her wealthy father's wishes, married a much older male servant. Her father provided them a one-time dowry of a substantial amount with the agreement that they would not ask for money ever again and would leave New York forever. They married and headed to Yellowstone National Park for their honeymoon, staying in room 127 of the Old Faithful Inn. 
On their way to Yellowstone, the grooms spent most of the money on gambling and booze. A month into their honeymoon, the dowry was gone. This led to intense arguments between the couple, which was heard by hotel staff. One day the husband stormed out and never returned. The hotel staff thought that they might give the heartbroken wife her space and after a few days decided to check in on her. The maid found the young bride bloody in the bathtub. Her head was nowhere to be found. A couple days later, an odor in the crow's nest led staff to her head. Dauphine Orleans Hotel, New Orleans, Louisiana A young courtesan named Millie worked in May's Place, a bar in the Dauphine Orleans Hotel. The morning of her wedding, her groom-to-be was shot dead in a gambling dispute. Millie, from that point on, and even after death, walked around the bar in her wedding dress. She still walks around the bar in her wedding dress today, waiting for her fiancé to return. The Driscoll Hotel in Austin, Texas Room 525 is haunted by two brides. Allegedly, two young women ended their lives in the room on their honeymoons, 20 years apart. The room was closed for a time and then eventually reopened for renovations. The renovations brought about some paranormal activity, including apparitions, weird sensations, unexplained leaks, distant voices, and other odd noises. The Hotel Galvez in Galveston, Texas Since her death in the 1950s, a ghost bride haunts room 501 in Hotel Galvez. Her fiancé was a mariner, and she, when expecting his return, would watch the sea from the hotel. One tragic day, she watched as his ship sank and soon after ended her life. She had actually survived and returned to heartbreak. She still walks the halls, scaring guests. One guest in room 501 abruptly left the hotel at 3 a.m. in tears. The City Tavern, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania A bride and her bridesmaids were preparing for the wedding when one bridesmaid accidentally knocked over a candle, setting the curtains on fire. The fire spread throughout the tavern, taking the lives of the bride and her bridesmaids. The ghost of the bride is active today, especially during wedding events at the tavern. Some wedding photographers have even reported seeing her apparition appearing next to the living bride when looking through the camera viewfinder, although no one has caught her on film. Emily Morgan Hotel, San Antonio, Texas the Emily Morgan Hotel resides in a building originally erected in the 1920s. The hotel itself was established in that same building in the 1980s. The building, first used as a medical arts building, is lined with gargoyles portraying a different medical ailment. Such an astonishing building comes with some astonishing ghost stories, of course. The seventh floor of the 13th floor building is haunted by a ghost bride. Her backstory is unknown visitors of the hotel have called down to the front desk after hearing loud shrieks. Hotel staff simply reply, we're sorry, but we do think it might be a ghost responsible for that. Hotel Conneaut, Erie, Pennsylvania Elizabeth and her new husband 
stayed in room 321 on their honeymoon. Their blissful vacation was interrupted by a raging fire in the hotel. The husband was able to get out alive, but Elizabeth was trapped in the room and died. The heartbroken bride still roams the third floor, looking for her husband and sobbing. Wearing a wedding dress, she leaves behind a smell of jasmine. The Alpha Gamma Delta House at University of Georgia, Athens, Georgia The AGD sorority house at the University of Georgia once housed the wealthy families of Athens. The mansion was built by William Winstead Thomas in 1896 as an engagement gift for his daughter Isabel and her fiancé Richard W. Johnson. The house is often called the Wedding Cake House because of that. Isabel ended her life in the house after Richard left her at the altar. The house went through a couple of hands before becoming a sorority house. According to several reports, the scorned bride is still active in the house. Paranormal activity includes faucets turning on, lights turning on and off by themselves, doors opening by themselves, and faces appearing in the window. One sorority sister named Sarah lived in the engagement room and described her experiences. The door to my bedroom and my roommate's closet door randomly swing open on their own. I swear that the ghost who lives here is doing it. It really freaks me out. Long Island Campgrounds, Bolton Landing, New York The state campground has 90 sites, over 100 acres. In the 1960s, a new husband and wife decided it was the perfect location for their honeymoon. They were allegedly murdered in their sleep while camping. The bride now wanders the grounds, looking for her husband among the living campers. Phelps Grove Park, Springfield, Illinois When driving over a bridge in Phelps Grove Park, a newly married couple lost control of the car and both died. The bride still haunts the location. She can be seen holding the hem of her wedding dress, and her face is only darkness. Curves, Onondaga Hill, New York A similar story appears in Onondaga Hill folklore. About 60 years ago, a young couple died in a car crash on a very snaky road just after their wedding. People claim to see the bride on Halloween. Her glowing figure floats down the road in a wedding gown, searching for her husband. Some say she carries a bright orange lantern. Baker Mansion, Altoona, Pennsylvania Anna Baker, the daughter of the rich Elias Baker, fell in love with a local steelworker. Her father forbade her to marry him because he was of a lower class. She died alone. Much later, the Baker Mansion in Altoona, Pennsylvania was made into a museum and a wedding dress was put on display in a glass case in Anna's bedroom. When there's a full moon, the dress violently shakes, sometimes to the point of almost breaking the glass. Myth says she is so mad she never got to wear a wedding dress and therefore shakes it in anger. Some people often report seeing it dance by itself, with the shoes tapping along. Some Small Town in North Dakota The book Haunted America by Michelle Norman and Beth Scott tells a spooky story of sisterly jealousy in the 1930s. 
sisters Lorna May and Carol were complete opposites. Lorna May, the youngest sister, was strong, cheerful, and a hard worker. The older sister Carol was reportedly more attractive, grumpy, and lazy. They both fell in love with the same man, a widower with three children, Ben. Ben chose Lorna May to be his wife, imagining the both of them working side by side on the farm. Carol was very angry. Shouldn't he be with the prettier one? Shortly before the wedding, Lorna May suffered abdominal pains. Carol was nearby and was sent to get the doctor. She returned saying that she could not find a doctor in town. It's believed she lied about that and even dawdled in town to waste time. Lorna May was rushed to town but died of a ruptured appendix shortly after arriving. Carol then set out to marry Ben. She even demanded the undertaker remove the wedding dress from Lorna May's dead body before the burial. A month after the funeral, Carol was able to convince Ben to marry her. Their wedding was in mid-July in 100-degree heat. Carol looked beautiful in Lorna May's high-neck wedding dress. During the festivities, though, Carol began to sway and grab at her throat. She died in Ben's arms. The autopsy revealed that it could not be heat stroke. The wedding dress had absorbed some of the embalming fluid while on Lorna May. The hot weather caused Carol to sweat, which opened her pores and allowed the fluid to enter. Well, I'm back at that same childhood legend, aren't I? Well, if you are planning on getting married in the near future, I might suggest going with a new dress, not going vintage. Gargoyles are depicted with many fearsome faces. They grin and leer down from roofs and towers of medieval churches and have been present there for centuries, warding off evil. They decorate great churches and cathedrals of the British Isles, Ireland, and other European countries. It is traditionally believed that gargoyles were created during the medieval period. However, their history goes far beyond that time to the very beginnings of art, when man created demons to scare away demons. Many examples of these creatures have been found in ancient civilizations as well. The use of decorative water spouts was known to the ancient Egyptians, Etruscans, Greeks, and Romans, and gargoyle-like carvings have been found in other parts of the world, especially in countries that were influenced by European culture and tradition, such as Mexico. They have appeared in a number of different images and figures, and it is said that no two gargoyles are identical, but no one seems to know why. They were seen on the roofs of Egyptian temples, where their mouths served as a spout for water. Also, Greek temples were decorated with gargoyles in form of lions and other animals. Later, these creatures became strictly ornamental and assumed many forms such as dragons, devils, demons, half-human and half-animal as well as caricatures of real people or classes of people. The name gargoyle is often attributed to St. Romanus, the Archbishop of Rowan. According to legend, he saved his country from a monster by the name of Goji, sometimes called Gargoyle. The Gargoyle is said to have been a legendary dragon with bat-like wings, 
a long neck and the ability to breathe fire from its mouth that lived in a cave near the Seine River in the 7th century and was ravaging the town and people of Rowan. It was slain by St. Romanus, the Archbishop of Rowan. After the dragon was slain, its body was set ablaze. Its body was consumed by fire, but the head and neck survived and was mounted on a building. Supposedly, the monster was so scary-looking that it frightened off evil spirits. This led to some calling the monster a protector and placing similar carved figures on churches and other important buildings. Originally, the term referred only to the carved lions of classical cortices or to terracotta spouts, such as those found in the Roman structures at Pompeii. The word later became restricted mainly to the grotesque, carved spouts of the European Middle Ages. It is often but incorrectly applied to other grotesque beasts. Gargoyles always have drainage conduits. Other carved beast depictions do not. What's important is not all grotesques are gargoyles, but all gargoyles are indeed grotesques. A French abbot, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, 1090-1153, was famous for speaking out against gargoyles, most probably because he didn't fully understand their role when he wrote, What are these fantastic monsters doing in the cloisters before the eyes of the brothers as they read? What is the meaning of these unclean monkeys, these strange, savage lions and monsters? To what purpose are here placed these creatures, half-beast, half-man, or these spotted tigers? I see several bodies with one head and several heads with one body. Here is a quadruped with a serpent's head. There a fish with a quadruped's head, then again an animal half-horse, half-goat. Surely, if we do not blush for such absurdities, we should at least regret what we have spent on them. Even in the United States, gargoyles were used on more modern buildings as a form of decoration, such as the stainless steel versions used on the Chrysler Building in New York City, at Princeton University, University of Chicago, and Duke University. Perhaps the most famous are the gargoyles that decorate the Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., the sixth largest cathedral in the world, and likely to be the last Gothic cathedral ever built. It has 112 gargoyles, rain diversion devices with a spout, and over 1,000 other grotesques, those without a spout. When people think of gargoyles, most envision monsters and dragons and the like, but there are also other intriguing and odd figures. More famous gargoyles from history are those used on Notre Dame de Paris, they reside atop dizzying heights and are often unnoticed by human eyes but ever watchful of our movements. They have observed us for centuries. The gargoyles of the famous Notre Dame Cathedral, half man, half beast, preside over Paris and have done so since the medieval times. It is believed that there is no commonly accepted explanation of why these odd carved creatures exist as they do. Why were these figures actually placed atop the buildings? Do they have a symbolic meaning? Were they used for repelling evil or perhaps only for architectural balance? Or were they, perhaps, as Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute in Berlin suggested, watchmen of the period, guardians of the ancient religious sanctuaries?
do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this month I'm asking you to help us raise as much money as we can for depression and suicide prevention, and you can give right now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. As of recording this episode, we are currently at $740. Believe it or not, here it is only the 9th of October and we already are down to $260 left in order to make our $1,000 goal. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for your generosity. And a big thanks to those who've contributed today. Sue, Alfred, thank you so very much. We do still have that $260 left to go, plus we'd like to go well over $1,000 because this is a very worthy cause. We all know somebody who deals with depression or who has even possibly committed suicide so you know how dire the need is. So please, make your gift now. You can click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch scary videos I find online, and more. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, any way you connect with the outside world. If you want to drop me an email, you can do that by sending it to darren at weirddarkness.com. And if you want to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast right now, go ahead, take a moment and leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Adam McLean left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, I don't listen to any other podcast except this one and Krista Elias. Weird Darkness has the quality I love and the content that I've been wanting. Love the tone and the stories. The narrator is the best for the job. Keep it up. Paul is one of my YouTube subscribers and he decided to leave a pretty cool comment there. He said, I've only been into the podcast scene like a year but everyone I tried was okay but didn't hold my interests. And then I found yours and I've done it several times at work. I'd be okay to take a break from Weird Darkness, might last a minute, then I'm back to it. There's something about the way you speak that keeps the listener up right and focused. I've learned a lot from the podcast, like the skull and crossbones, always wondered what that meant. I recently bought a few laptop stickers and a case for my iPhone 6 keep up the great work and I plan on becoming a patron for like 25 a month, not because I want free or anything, but I remember when I first got my iPhone 6, I was buying scary stories from the Apple Store that weren't cheap, and your podcast is free and amazing, so I want to give at least 25 a month. Signed, Paul. Wow, thanks a lot, Paul. I appreciate that. And uh, Texas Ranger World Poker Series left me an Apple Podcast review saying, this is by far one of the best. At least two shows a week and countless stories in each show. Historically sound and diverse. One of my go-to podcasts. Try it. Well, thanks to all of you guys for the reviews and the comments. And take a moment if you've not already done so. Drop me an email or a review and I might read yours in an upcoming podcast. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true and you can find links in the show notes. The Cursed Village of Witches was written by Brent Swanser. Till Death, Ghost Brides of the United States was posted at NotebookofGhosts.com. 
No Good Deed Goes Unpunished was written by Wyatt Redd. The Annie Dorman Mystery was written by Robert Wilhelm. The Betty and Barney Hill Abduction was written by Les Hewitt. And In the Protection of Gargoyles was written by A. Sutherland. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 91, verse 5. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. <laughs>